the Republican Party of Iowa has to raise over a million dollars just to run basic caucus operations. Now, I don't know exactly what it would cost to do all the control of mail-in ballots and the barcodes and organization and storage securely and everything that would take to carry off what the Democrats have said that they want to do. But the reality is the Iowa Democratic Party is basically broke right now, and they can't afford to run the kind of caucus that they've said that they want to. So they're in real trouble. What will happen with them? I have no idea. You're entering the voting booth. I'm John Fortier of the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm Don Palmer with the Election Assistance Commission. This is a podcast that looks at the inner workings of elections. We're welcoming to the show Alan Ostegren on this focus on the Iowa caucus. He's an attorney who's now practicing in Des Moines, Iowa, but he is an election law attorney who's organizing the structure of the 2024 Iowa caucus. Now, his background, he's been to 25 years as a trial or appellate attorney. He was elected three times to serve as the Muscatine County attorney, which is like the county attorney. He had 22 years of law enforcement activity. He was identified by the Des Moines Register as one of their 2022 people to watch. And he was the attorney that represented Congresswoman Miller Meeks in her recount in the Congressional District 2. Welcome to the show, Alan. Appreciate you coming on the voting booth. It's wonderful to be here. I'm looking forward to the program. And just maybe a little note about the bio of Alan. So for those of you um, who are listening, there is a difference between a caucus and a primary. We're going to hear more about that on, on the show today. But if we were talking about a primary, we'd probably be looking to talk to somebody directly in the Secretary of State's office run by the state. The caucus process is run by the party, and therefore someone expert like Alan is perfect to talk about that. One preview, our, our next guest, as, as this uh, episode is coming out before the Iowa caucus, our next episode will be coming out just after the Iowa caucus and before the New Hampshire primary, where we will have Secretary of State of New Hampshire, Dave Scanlon, explaining the New Hampshire process and the primary that follows Iowa. So let's start, Alan, with there are a number of parts of the caucus, but the first one that maybe voters would see more, and especially this year, because there's a more of a race on the on the Republican side, that voters are are going to the polls on a certain day. But it's a little different than a primary in that it's one location that you go to at one very particular time. There's no absentee voting and then ballots are cast. But that's just the beginning of the process. So why don't you walk us through what it looks like to be a voter in the Republican caucus in Iowa coming up? Sure, John. Glad to be on the program. So caucus, another way to think of that is a meeting. It's Republicans or Democrats getting together with other people in their party to start the organizational process. The caucus to convention process is very important for the party's organizational needs, and it has to check some boxes off to do the things that it needs to do to, under state law to be officially organized in the right way as a political party that has access to the ballot as a major political party. But it starts in a very informal way. Iowans will gather on caucus night at elementary school libraries and in the high school gym and school libraries and church basements, any place you can imagine. Some caucus locations uh, in the past have been held in people's living rooms. And you meet as neighbors and you organize. And what that means is all the people in that precinct who want to be involved as uh, a part of the Republican Party show up on the same night and get themselves organized, elect delegates to county conventions, elect central committee members, 
decide who's going to be on the county platform committee and organization committee, all those nuts and bolts that it takes to run a political party. Now, the thing that gets all the attention, of course, is the part of the caucus that occurs in a presidential election year, which is a presidential preference poll, kind of like a straw poll that happens where the caucus attendees indicate what their preference is for president. And because we're first, we get a lot of attention for that, but it's only one part of the official caucus process. And just, I know we had talked about this before offline, but the very beginning of a process for a voter is going to show up. And I I think it's in the evening. Maybe you give us even the more exact times and, and the date, but in the evening you show up and there is a little bit of business to be done before a voter can then cast their ballot in the Republican Iowa caucus for for Donald Trump or for Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley, however they want to do it. So what's the what does it look like right at the beginning, the business that's done? And then how do we get to this actual casting of a, of a ballot for president? Sure. Well, at the precinct location, you have a list of all the registered Republicans in the precinct and get people checked in. You can also register to vote on caucus night. So it's not necessary that you've been a Republican for a long time. You can show up and and recruitment and party building is part of the process. And then if you've ever been involved in any kind of meeting at the local level of parliamentary process, you you organize, you call it to order, you elect a permanent chair. And then actually one of the first things you do is you pass the hat and try and get everybody to throw five bucks in to defray some of the costs of running a caucus. And we can get back to that, why that's important in a minute. And then in a presidential cycle, you're going to move right to the presidential preference poll. You have a room full of people who are only there for that. There are a few hard chargers who really want to be on the platform committee, and they're going to stick it out for the full hour to hour and a half, however long it takes. But most people are there because they want to express the preference for president. So that's the first really substantive thing after you collect some cash from people, uh, which is purely voluntary, by the way. And then uh, once you've done the fundraising part and then the presidential preference part, then most people leave. And then the hard chargers who are still left can turn to the real core party organizational things like central committee, delegates, committees, all those things. And we talked about this before, but the one difference between the caucus and the primary or the party running the enterprise versus the electoral officials from the state running the enterprise is there's not really a ballot as such. This, this is people are writing the, their choices on a just a simple piece of paper and putting it in a box. Is that generally the case? Yes. Normally you pass out slips of paper. You know, it's all done really in front of everybody. Uh, now, nobody necessarily has to look right over your shoulder when you fill out the piece of paper, but it's not, you know, you don't go into a voting booth. You don't mark the ballot like you might be used to where it's supposed to be private in that sense. But really, you know, you're just jotting a name down on a piece of paper and then you throw them all in a box. And the transparency of the process, it's pretty simple. Everybody writes the name down, throws the paper in, and then you count them right there. And whoever wants to stick around and watch can do so. And then you report the results up at the county level and then they get transmitted to the state party for tabulation. So that part is very straightforward. It's very simple. It's fundamentally different than how you would run a regular primary or general election administered by the government. So, Alan, the um, you know, we're less than 30 days to the caucus, and I know you may have direct knowledge, but what is the status of how the Democrats will conduct uh, the caucus? Will it be a hybrid or will it be similar to what the Republicans are doing? So the Democrats, they're in real trouble because Iowa Democrats wanted to keep the first position as they had 
traditionally along with Republicans. You know, it's in state law that the caucus has to occur eight days before any similar primary or caucus anyplace else in the country. And the parties had fought for years to stay first. Well, after the debacle that the Iowa Democrats had in the 2020 cycle, in which they completely fouled up the administration of their caucus and how results were reported, and it was just a disaster on their side. I think that was the breaking point for pressure on the Democrats uh, nationally, who resented Iowa's status as going first. Pretty tired arguments about how Iowa's not deserving of the status to go first. And also, let's not forget that President Biden finished way back in the field, fourth or fifth, I think it was, in the Iowa caucuses. He has no love for the Iowa caucuses. And as the titular head of the Democratic Party nationally, he was in a position either actively or through omission to let the Iowa caucuses slide on the Democratic side. So it's still really unclear exactly how they're going to pull things off. They wanted to adopt a kind of hybrid vote by mail to make it what they think is more open and accessible, but not tabulate results until after the date that the DNC had given them. It's still not clear that that's actually going to be allowed to happen. Organizationally, they still need to have a caucus. And we're, we are really at the 11th hour here, and it's still very unclear what's going to happen on the Democratic side. You know, one of the things we talked about offline is I think a lot of political observers in Iowa are not convinced that the Iowa Democratic Party can even afford to run the mail-in vote hybrid caucus system that they have proposed. You know, this is a good time to mention the fact that caucuses are an entirely party-run endeavor. The Republican Party of Iowa has to raise over a million dollars just to run basic caucus operations. Now, I don't know exactly what it would cost to do all the control of mail-in ballots and the barcodes and organization and storage securely and everything that would take to carry off what the Democrats have said that they want to do. But the reality is the Iowa Democratic Party is basically broke right now, and they can't afford to run the kind of caucus that they've said that they want to. So they're in real trouble. What will happen with them? I have no idea. And I do know the Republicans caucus is going to go on as it has in the past under the same rules that it always has. And that's a good thing for us. Can I take you a little bit back to the Republican side? As I, I think these are interesting questions, but as a matter of contrast and just what you're going to see on the Republican side, sometimes I think people are confused because the Democrats in the past have run things slightly differently. There, there was famously perhaps different rounds of voting. People declare their preferences and maybe people don't reach a threshold and there's some bargaining and you might be there for a little while. But the Republican primary, the voter that walks in, they they have their very initial opening of the meeting and the passing of the hat, the $5, they get their ballot, they put it in the box, pretty much they're done then. And so that's the extent of, the, from the voter voter process, as you were hinting, there's, there's no absentee voting, there's no early voting, there's no voting during the day beforehand. It's a, it's a one-time deal where you come in and you put your preference on a piece of paper, and then ultimately that vote gets counted probably very quickly, and so that the results are, are known quite soon. Is that a fair assessment of the difference between the Republican and the Democratic sides in the past? That's right. And it's an important detail that sometimes gets missed. And you'll see some national political commentators talking about, you know, poll information about the Republican side and talking about whether candidates are viable on the Republican side. And, and frankly, they're confused about how the Republican rules work versus the Democrats rules work. The Democrats had a very complicated system where you had to hit a 15% viability threshold in order to move on. 
And so there would be, it's not really ranked choice voting, but there'd be this sort of runoff process where candidates could not hit viability in a particular precinct. And so the other campaigns would then try and woo those people to come on over and stand with them. And so uh, if you were people's second choice, it was a little bit more important on the Democratic side, but that made their caucus take a lot longer because you can imagine the counting involved to determine if people have hit the threshold and then the rounds of moving people here and there to get them to come to your candidate's side. The Democrats also had a needlessly complicated system where they were weighting the delegate totals to based on what had happened in the previous general election for turnout. And this really, I think, bit the Democrats in the 2016 cycle when, as you may recall, Bernie Sanders was running as kind of the outsider campaign against Hillary Clinton. And Bernie Sanders is drawing support from a lot of places, you know, college campuses particularly, but not exclusively, that may not have had high Democratic turnout in the preceding election. Well, the problem that resulted is, is that those precincts had lower weight in the math for state delegate equivalents, and it resulted in some of Bernie Sanders' support being lost in all of the complicated math that went into figuring out the state delegate equivalents, which is what the Democrats were reporting. Republicans do it, frankly, I think, a lot better way. And that is, it's just, you count noses. Uh, you show up, it's a raw vote total. Whoever, candidate one gets this many votes, candidate two gets this many votes, and so on. There's no messing around with viability thresholds or any of that. And it's all straight up based on allocating delegates, how many you get based on what your vote total is. So it's very easy to do that math. And it's a much cleaner, simpler, faster system to do. And I think part of the problem that the Democrats had in the 2020 cycle is their reporting system had this complexity layered on it to figure out all this math and, and do all these things. And that just led them straight to disaster. And just quickly, the, the, the votes that are cast by the voter on the Republican side they're counted right there at the local caucus, and they might, if they stuck around, they might be able to hear the results locally, but then transmitted to the state, and ultimately, a final total of all the caucuses is, is arrived at, and at least the calculation of the number of delegates, again, this is not to elect the person directly, but to elect delegates who go to the national convention, the Republican National Convention in the summer, the number of those delegates that, let's say, Donald Trump or Ron Santos or Nikki Haley wins that will all be reported how, how long? Within an hour or a couple hours? I mean, very, very soon after the, the actual casting of the ballot by the voter. Yeah, the party will report pretty quickly what the raw totals are. And that's really, I think, what people are going to care about, the percentage breakdown that you know Trump gets such and such percent, DeSantis gets such and such, and so on. You know, that will all sort of churn out into the math for delegate equivalents. I think what people really care about, you know, is this a 45% for one candidate, 35 for another, or some other breakdown of the percentage vote total. But the percentage vote total that's known on caucus night will very simply translate over to who earns however many delegates going into the national convention. And as you said, the number of delegates each candidate has earned through the Iowa caucuses will be known. The actual person who would go to the national convention doesn't get determined until later. But that process uh, will happen at district and state conventions later. Alan, could you give us a little bit of the history of the Iowa caucus and sort of why there's a unique style of campaigning and why that works for Iowa? Well, sure. And, you know, I think it's uh, a great story in American politics because 
you know, some of the response to you know, the turmoil of the 60s and uh, how presidential campaigning used to go. And it was much more controlled top down. Lots of states tried to open up their process to make it more democratic, how we nominated candidates for president. And it's just sort of happenstance that the process that Iowa picked put us first. And it really became important when Jimmy Carter figured that system out and used the Iowa caucus's accessibility, essentially, to put himself into prominence in the 1976 cycle. The Iowa caucuses are great because you can campaign very simply. I think campaigns are changing. Uh, The media market is changing. Social media the things that a candidate has to do in order to compete, it, you know, it's it's different every cycle. And as I, I recall, one of my political science professors saying in college, we've not yet had a statistically significant number of presidential elections, right? So it changes every time. And you can only carry so much over from one to the next. But the thing that's great about the Iowa caucuses is you can show up in a community. There's a uh, restaurant chain based in Iowa called Pizza Ranch. They're known for their fried chicken, actually. And every pizza ranch in Iowa has a like a community room that if you call ahead, you can get for free. You can show up in a small town, Iowa, get the pizza ranch room, bring some supporters in, a few people eat pizza, eat some fried chicken, and you can campaign for president on a shoestring. That's really special. As Iowans, I don't think we realize how great we have it, that you can see presidential candidates everywhere. You know, the old joke of, of the Iowa caucus attendee who, who says, I don't know what I think about, you know, Senator so-and-so yet because I've only met him five times. There's a lot of truth to that. That really is how it can work. You can talk to people who might be president. And even if they're not going to be president, you know, in most situations, they're kind of an interesting person anyway. They're a senator. They're a governor. They've done other things. And so it's a wonderful front seat to the whole political process. And I don't think Iowans necessarily understand how lucky we are compared to people in, you know, if you live in California, you know, the presidential nomination occurs on TV and you're basically a bystander. And just one other aspect of the history, and it maybe came about accidentally, is that the uh, Iowa has gone first as a caucus and then New Hampshire has gone first as the primary. And it is even... I will say in state law in New Hampshire, and that's causing some difficulties for Democrats these days, but uh, in state law that, that New Hampshire has to be the first primary, but they don't necessarily view Iowa as a, as a threat to that because they, they don't see it as a primary. It's a caucus. It's a little different. So talk about, I mean, over the years, there's been some moving of these caucuses and primaries up to be very early in January, sometimes later, but there's often a, a competition or attempt to, uh, of other states to go first. Sure. Yeah, the political alliances over the years that have broken down uh, have been very interesting. The Iowa Democratic Party and the Iowa Republican Party, traditionally, up until this last cycle, have been united in the idea that Iowa needs to stay first for the caucuses and have been in a relatively decent truce with the state of New Hampshire that, you know, we'll fight to be first for the caucus, we'll help fight for you to be first for the primary. And you reciprocate and we'll be united in starting with Iowa and then to New Hampshire. And that has worked pretty well. And when I say that the the two political parties in Iowa were united, I mean, you go back to the 2020 cycle when the Democrats had their debacle. I mean, Jeff Kaufman, the chair of the Iowa Republican Party, was out there telling every reporter he could find 
that the Democrats need time to do this right, and it's it's all going to work out, and and giving frankly a lot of political and communications cover to the Democrats when ordinarily you would be out there in any other kind of political fight, you'd be out sticking a knife in their belly. But to stay first, we're best buds. That has broken down because the Iowa Democrats have largely stepped away from first. Well, the, and, na- the national Democrats have. Well, I should say that the national have, the Iowa Democrats have lost the fire. There's a real breakdown. And let me explain that. There's a real disconnect between Iowa Democratic Party leadership who want to stay first and Iowa Democratic grassroots who think the whole thing is ridiculous because they think that the caucus attendees are too Caucasian, too male, too, whatever category you want to pick. So when I say Iowa Democrats, I'm, I'm meaning that more broadly, not the Iowa Democratic Party. The Iowa Democratic leadership wants to stay first, and they failed in that effort. But their grassroots are not big on this whole process. I mean, we have to remember, going back to 2020, you know, Iowa Democrats, I think, in some COVID posturing, basically refused to have a traditional caucus and, you know, wanted to do it virtually. And it, it was all fouled up as to how they ran that process. And then refused to campaign door to door because they were so intent on virtue signaling about COVID and all those other things. And they got destroyed. And they've just been in a downward spiral ever since. So, Alan, let's moving off from the caucus a bit. You were the election law attorney for Congresswoman uh, Miller Meeks. And that was a very, very close race in Congressional District 2. You know, when it was first certified, it looked like it was around 48 to 50 votes. Tell us about that experience. And it must have been a whirlwind, obviously, uh, with the House of Representatives' leadership on the line. Could you talk a little bit about that recount, what you learned about the election administration process and your observations from that? Sure. Yeah, uh, whirlwind is a great way to describe it. So the backstory is I had just left being a local elected official. I had left in the middle of my term to go into private law practice in Des Moines. And had done a little bit of election law. I I was hired to be local counsel for RNC and other campaign groups in some litigation about, again, COVID-related absentee ballot request rules. And we actually then turned into some affirmative litigation about we sued three county auditors who wanted to send uh, pre-populated absentee ballot request forms out kind of willy-nilly, violating certain things in Iowa election law. And we were actually one of the few places where Republicans got affirmative relief in court to maintain election rules throughout the country. So I was pretty proud of that. But that whole thing wound up just before the election. And I thought I was done as an election lawyer. And then two days after the election, I got a call that Thursday night from somebody I knew on the Miller Meeks campaign team. And they were greatly concerned because as counties, you know, if they report unofficial results on election night, and then under the rules that existed at the time, you know, absentee ballots would continue to come in until the Monday following. The law is now in Iowa that they have to be in the auditor's hand by eight o'clock election day when the polls close. But absentee ballots would still be coming in in the mail and counties would be updating their results. Well, as that was going on, a lead on election night of about 280 votes all of a sudden disappeared. And it looked like Marionette was losing that race by about 110 votes. Well, as you can imagine, that kicked off an enormous amount of effort. So I got 
jumped right into representing the campaign and trying to figure out what was going on that Thursday night and uh, was basically on the phone till about two in the morning trying to get people to tell me what was going on. And fast forwarding into that process up to state certification, you know, we were out in the field scrambling to cure provisional ballots and, and chase down ballots that, you know, somebody showed up and didn't have their ID and get them to go back down and show their ID to the auditor. So we had a whole field effort to try to help our total out. What finally happened was one county had a discrepancy in their results, which they corrected. And then we go into that Monday night following the election, Monday afternoon following the election, believing that she had lost by about probably 100 votes. And then a different county found a discrepancy in their vote totals, which flipped it the other way and made the final state certified total about 50 votes in our favor. Well, when two different counties have had corrected results between the unofficial results on election night and the state certification, you know what's going to happen next. And that's a statewide <laughs> recount or district-wide recount, I should say. So I was fortunate enough to lead that legal team. And as I like to say to people, this was like learning how to skydive after you jumped out of the airplane. I didn't quite know what I was getting myself into, but it is an intense process. There's an involvement from, obviously, you have the campaign, you have your national campaign committee, the House Committee on Administration has jurisdiction over election contests, and so that they, they send a team out to start to monitor what's going on in the field. Now, of course, in that cycle, Democrats were in the majority, so they were going to be in charge of that House Administration Committee and had control over what would happen in a election contest if it made it that way to the House. So we did a statewide recount, and it ended up with a state certified total of a six-vote margin in Congresswoman Miller-Meeks' favor, which uh, I've been told is the closest congressional race in over 100 years, if, if not ever. It was quite an experience. 24 counties, there's a, a recount process in each county. Now, I think in the final analysis, I think the real vote total was closer to 40 or 50 as it was originally in one county in particular. Our friends on the other side, I think, got some rulings from the recount board that were legally wrong, but uh, worked in their favor. And they had some real problems with the vote totals and couldn't get their numbers to, to match. But if you win, you can't file a contest. So, I mean, we had won by six votes, but I, I think the total was actually a little bit higher than that. And then that turned into a contest in the House. The Democrat, Rita Hart, filed a contest. Interestingly, chose to go straight to the House of Representatives instead of following her rights under Iowa law to file a court proceeding and challenge what had happened in the recount under state law, state judges, state legal procedures. She just skipped that. And I think that proved to be a terrible mistake on her part, terrible legal advice given by Mark Elias, who was representing her, she should have fought that out in state court and then, if needed, take it to the U.S. House, but she didn't do that. Well, I just want to follow up briefly. So, you know, you prepared for this contest in the U.S. House and it ultimately it did not proceed. But what were your takeaways as an election law attorney as preparation for that contest? And were they focused on voter intent issues, the process itself, overseas military ballots? What what were the major issues that you were preparing for and that the House was sort of scrutinizing? Yeah, we we were getting really geared up 
as I told you, uh, when we were meeting to prepare for this, you know, I, I was probably one of the few highly politically aware people in America that had no idea that the January 6th thing happened because I was in my office reading Dressler's Presidents of the House, looking at records on every House contested election that had ever happened. TV off, cell phone off, not looking at email, just hitting the books for about 14 hours straight and emerged from my cave and was like, oh, let me check the news. So we were preparing. So the, the Democrat, Rita Hart, had claimed that there were about 20 or so, I think 22 ballots that were not counted and should have been counted and had various arguments for why they should have been counted. And some of them I thought were pretty weak, like uh, somebody mailed their absentee ballot to the wrong auditor and it never got to the, the right auditor in time. And, you know, they were arguing with a straight face that as so long as a county auditor had received the ballot, it should be counted, not, not the county auditor for where they live, which I thought was a pretty weak argument. We were not sure exactly how the Democrats were going to present that argument. The really substantive thing that we had gotten through in the contest proceedings was working with the committee on uh, House administration on what would be the rules for litigating the contest. Now, the Federal Contested Election Act has some very bare bones procedures in it, really timelines of when you file your documents, if you're contesting and when you respond, and it's not a complete set of rules. The committee had asked both sides to propose rules that they would use for litigating the contest. We proposed that the committee use as much as possible the federal rules of civil procedure. The, the same kind of rules that would gather evidence and discovery in, in a civil proceeding would be used here. That was our idea. What the Democrats said was that the committee should essentially not do that. And they actually put in writing that the committee should feel free to, quote, depart from Iowa law in its process for determining the intent of voters. So in other words, make it up as they went along, not follow Iowa laws on when a ballot had to be received, how the ballot had to be marked, what security had to be done in the process, that the committee should just simply make up its own rules when it proceeded to count votes. That was obviously an extremely problematic request. So really, at the point where the contest was abandoned by the Democrat, we were much more focused on the fight of procedure, how we were going to litigate that. Now, that turns into the second part that I think is really interesting about that contest. The committee had not ruled on the requests of both sides as to adopting procedures. And our timelines are still kind of going along. And so both sides are essentially a little bit in the dark. But you know, we, we realized that there are these 22 voters out there that the Democrats said should have had votes counted. And so we're gonna, we want to take depositions of those voters. Now, the Democrats told the committee that they wanted voters to not be subjected to depositions, which is, is pretty crazy. If you have any familiarity with how legal procedures work, how you find facts, they wanted the voters to be able to testify just by affidavit, not be subject to cross-examination. Well, we, of course, were totally against that. So they scheduled depositions with us of a number of their voters, roughly a dozen or so had been scheduled, but then abruptly canceled almost all of them. I only ended up taking the deposition of one voter who claimed that he had turned in his ballot and 
it hadn't been recorded as being received essentially. And this yeah. process is taking place in still now in, are we now in January of, of 2021? Uh, uh, January, or, February. January, February. Uh, and and just, just to, you know, to remind uh, listeners, the new Congress begins on January 3rd. And I believe that uh, Representative Miller Meeks was sworn in provisionally as sometimes is done when there is a, a potential contest of, of the election. And then this argument or potentially going to the committee, potentially having a much bigger process is still going forward even during this new Congress. Yes. What I think is really important about that whole thing is as we're kind of feeling our way through it, the committee's not ruled on what the procedures are going to be. You know, the Democrats are essentially unwilling to let us ask questions of these people that they say tried to vote for the Democrat and weren't able to. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm not convinced all 22 of those people that they identified actually existed. Now, if you think back to the political environment that we were in in early 2021, at that point, I caught myself up on the news of January 6th, and it was a pretty fraught time with you know Democrats on message attacking President Trump for denying election results and all of those things. And they were in, a, I think, a pickle because they're trying to defeat a state-certified vote total through this contest and the very real possibility that if at some point they can't come through with one of the people that they've said that they could come through with, you know, as I joke at the time, I mean, if we catch them dirty on one of these voters, then there'll be a Fox News satellite truck in front of my house that, that evening, right? Because that would completely dominate the political landscape. Now, you know, I don't pretend that if one of their voters fell through or there was some problem that would answer every allegation of anything that happened in the 2020 election. That's silly. But it would have been an extremely newsworthy event, let's just say that, and would have really driven headlines in a way that I don't think the Democrats could afford to drive them. And I think the combination of those two factors is what caused them eventually to pull their contest. Now, as we would have gone forward in that contest, we would have been able to show you know, the votes that we lost in that one county where the recount board couldn't reconcile its numbers correctly. At the end of the day, if the votes were counted legitimately in that contest, Marionette Miller-Meeks would still have been declared the winner. But the whole thing was looking like it was going to stink of bad process and get back to you know the precedent in 1984, I believe, in the bloody eighth in Indiana, where flagrantly a seat in the Congress was stolen by national Democrats. I'm really glad Don asked you about this line of questioning. There, there aren't so many people who have been involved or nearly involved, it didn't go all the way, but really involved in this congressional process. In fact, I I think a lot of voters don't know that that the final arbiter of congressional elections is the House for the House members and the Senate for the Senate elections. Uh, In fact, I think Don and I think, you know, maybe that's worth a full podcast later because in in our history, it used to actually be quite common. So, so we love that we have someone who, you know, has, has been there and been able to give us a little taste of this. Also, thank you for uh, giving us a preview of the Iowa caucuses, which are coming up. We end our show with every guest with, with two questions. And I'll, I'll ask the first one and Don can and close us out. The first one here is how did you get involved in elections? And then if you looked back to yourself before you got involved in elections, what would you tell your pre-election self? What have you learned after your, all your experience that that pre-election Alan Ostergren wouldn't have known? Well, I got into elections first as a candidate. I was elected to be county attorney three times. And so I saw the process as a candidate and helping other candidates uh, in their races and as a county chair. And then I got into it more, as I said, really kind of happenstances to election law that it just so happened that 
you know, one of the closest congressional races in history was won by somebody who I knew pretty well and was local. And uh, I happened to be the lawyer that they called. So, you know, when in doubt, depend on luck, I suppose. In all seriousness, I would I would tell myself, I would say, if you're going to prepare for doing a election litigation and contests and recounts and all those things, really, really learn how to use Excel because it would really help. <laughs> So, Alan, uh, we all we usually follow up with the question: What what funny or unusual event, uh, you know, do you recall since you've been in elections, or let's say, you know, or during the Iowa caucus, you know, what's something that you could share with the with the listeners? Sure. Well, I was thinking about this. This is actually something that happened during the primary last cycle. I was doing election day operations for Republicans, and we get this worried call from a precinct someplace, and and we're told. Now, it's like nine o'clock in the morning on the primary, and they call up and they say, oh, my God, they're out of ballots. Like, now, you know, occasionally this can happen where you run out of ballots and there's a protocol to the auditor has to print more emergently and keep track of them. And it's a whole thing. But, you know, it can happen, but it normally doesn't happen at nine o'clock in the morning. Right. (laughs) And we are just gobsmacked. Like, how do they run out of ballots at nine o'clock in the morning? And we call up the county auditor and she denies and she's Iowa nice to a degree, but she's a little testy when we assert that we've been told that you've run out of ballots. And she tells us most assuredly they have not run out of ballots at this precinct. And what are you talking about? And our person in the field says they've run out of ballots. What do we do? So we sent somebody over to the precinct and, you know, the primary was happening at an elementary school and also happening at that elementary school that day was during the summer was like a food pantry handing out food for people, right? Well, our voters showed up and they got in the food pantry line, not the voting line. And so they get to the front of the line and they're told, oh, I'm sorry, we're all out. And they thought that meant ballots and they left in a huff and were really mad. Now, fortunately, the people from the food pantry were so concerned, they had written their names down, planning to like go find a basket of food and bring it to them or something like that, make sure that they were fed. And so we were able to call them back and say, hey, go back to the elementary school and look for the door where it says vote here. And then that's that's where you want to go. And you know, that's one of those things where, you know, election day operations, it looks like it's a three alarm fire, it's gonna be a disaster. And within about ten minutes, you know, we're all have tears in our eyes, laughing so hard that such an innocent, you know, misunderstanding would have happened. So, you know, you never know what'll happen. Thank you. Alan Ostergren, thank you for helping us think through the Iowa caucuses. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Voting Booth, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jay Hun Lee and hosted by John Fortier and Don Palmer. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to The Voting Booth wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and tune in next time.